I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no... (laughs) There's a a blank spot in my script where I forgot to put something in here because I couldn't think of anything. Um, Heck, let's leave it in. This is Encounter 66, the Maury Island mess. Okay, Maury Island. Like Orfeo Angelucci, this is one of those stories I've been wanting to discuss but have avoided for two years because of the complexity of it all. It's a convoluted story with many moving parts. We've got a UFO sighting, a sighting of multiple craft with with multiple witnesses and and the craft doing very sort of strange maneuvers. We've got materials from the craft, allegedly. I'm not going to invoke the phrase alien alloys, That's a lie. I'm going to do that several times. But we have UFO materials. We have the Air Force, which included um, some investigators who suffered some semi-mysterious deaths. There is man in black type activity. Before, of course, men in black were even a thing. There's also the involvement of some significant UFO and fringe culture personalities, including pioneer saucer cider Kenneth Arnold, magazine guru Ray Palmer, and Fred Chrisman, who shows up in various odd places throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, and onward. The plan for today is to present the basic narrative in as straightforward a way as possible and then explore some of the interpretations and the legacy of the Maury Island incident. Will we come to any conclusive conclusions? No. No, we will not. So, I went back and forth on the best way to present the basics of the story using the two most contemporary accounts, that of Kenneth Arnold which was published in his 1957 book with Ray Palmer, uh, The Coming of the Saucers, and the FBI file that many people, including me, apparently at some point, based on what I found on my hard drive, have obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Kenneth Arnold's account published, was published later, but took place first, sort of. As you know, Kenneth Arnold um, had the first sort of documented UFO sighting in June, uh, June of 1947, the first one that sort of kicked everything off, and he will be closely associated with Ray Palmer, who, as you know, because we've seen a bit of him, is a magazine guy, sort of a pulp sci-fi magazine guy, who, via the Richard Shaver stuff, gets moved more into the world of, using this term very loosely, factual reporting. For more on Palmer, you can check out our episodes on Richard Shaver and our more recent episode on Orfeo Angelucci. Actually, we should probably do a whole episode on Ray Palmer at some point because he's certainly significant enough and I would have an excuse to plow through all of the issues of Fate magazine I grabbed off of the Internet Archives site. Anyway, 
In addition to the Arnold account, we'll be looking at some material from the FBI file. This is, is an almost contemporaneous account, but the trade-off is that it's about as dry as, you know, an FBI file. However, there's some good stuff in there. So I think in order to get as full a picture of what occurred as possible, we'll be starting with the Arnold account and then jumping into the FBI account, sort of picking out things that sort of enhance that Arnold story. So. In mid-July 1947, Kenneth Arnold received two letters from Ray Palmer, science fiction mag impresario and head of Venture Press. The second of these two letters informed Arnold of strange goings-on in Tacoma. He told me that he had heard that two harbor patrolmen in Tacoma, Washington had had a very unusual experience. A Mr. Harold A. Dahl and a Mr. Fred L. Chrisman claimed that they had not only seen a group of flying saucers, but that they had in their possession some fragments that came from one of them. Mr. Palmer wrote that he had a definite interest in the case and would send me expense money if I could find the time to go up there and investigate the authenticity of their story as well as ship some of the fragments if I could obtain them to him at Evanston, Illinois. Now, Kenneth Arnold doesn't know quite what to think of this. He's never met Ray Palmer. This is sort of his first contact with him. So he sets the letter aside for a while, and as he's setting out the letter, the fallout from his own legendary sighting is continuing, with a visit from, quote, two representatives of A-2 military intelligence of the 4th Air Force, end quote. These fellows were Lieutenant Frank Brown and Captain William Davidson. These two Air Force men, about whom we'll be hearing more later, were really friendly, and Arnold recalled the following about their visit. They treated us to a very wonderful dinner. We discussed various phases of my original observation. They said, frankly and openly, they didn't know what the flying saucers were. They had never seen one, they told us, but ever since my first report, they were practically bug-eyed from watching the sky themselves. They told Arnold to let them know if he experienced anything else and that he shouldn't talk about what happened to other people. Despite this request to keep things quiet, Arnold remained impressed with the two men's, quote, courtesy, politeness, and consideration. Arnold then thought about the letter from Palmer and decided to investigate the claims, getting $200 in expense money from him. I, you know, this is the podcast, the UFO podcast, where we are fastidious about converting things, you know, sort of to update currency for inflation. So Ken Arnold's $200 of expense money from Palmer in 1947 would be $2,274.48 today, which is, that that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. So he, he flies himself to Tacoma on June 29th, 1947. And the way he discussed this in The Coming of the Saucers is a little weird and awkward. And if you know anything about this show, you know we will sort of take a little digression from the plot to sort of parse out a sentence that's written really poorly. It's part of our charm. It was on the morning of July 29th, 1947, that I took off from a private cow pasture near my home. It was about 5.30 a.m. I never told anyone of my plans as to when I was going to leave Boise or at what date I would arrive in Tacoma, though a number of my friends did know of my proposed trip. That day, no one but my wife knew I had gone, and I took off so early in the morning that I was quite sure no one else knew or made any special note of my leaving. There has to be a clearer way to state that. Um, there just has to be. This leads to an entire paragraph in which Arnold explains that he never filed a flight plan, and he usually didn't file flight plans. 
Why we need to know that, I'm not sure, but he tells us. So he arrives in Tacoma, and he checks into room 502 of the Winthrop Hotel, which is great and fine and normal, except there's something weird about this. Arnold explains that he never reserved that room, and in fact, due to the, I mean, honestly, there's a whole history of the post World War II housing shortage in the United States, where you had young families and returning GIs sort of living in hotels for months on end while they awaited more permanent housing. Because of all this, Arnold, he, you know, tries every hotel, motel, boarding house, 1947 equivalent of Airbnb that he can think of, and he can't find a room. And finally, he just takes a chance and goes to the Winthrop Hotel, which was the, the, big, nice, cool, expensive hotel in in Tacoma. And he says, "Uh, do you have a room? And they say, oh yeah, there's a room for Kenneth Arnold. And he says, well, what a coincidence. That's my name also. What's his address? And they say, Boise, Idaho. And he says, that's weird because I didn't make that reservation. Yet the reservation was there. So he checks into room 502 of the Winthrop Hotel. And while he thought it was odd, he doesn't sort of pursue it at the time, being exhausted from the flight and from beating the bushes trying to find a hotel room. Anyway, the next morning, Arnold meets Harold Dahl, who he describes as, quote, not too anxious, quote, end quote, to speak with him. Dahl comes to Arnold's room, and Arnold describes the initial meeting as follows. I invited him in a little apologetically and started firing questions at him. He let me rave on for a little while, not answering a single thing I asked him. He finally said, Wait a minute, Mr. Arnold, not so fast. In talking with you, there are quite a number of things I want you to consider if you want me to tell you my story. In fact, I think I better go home. He got up as if to leave, then continued, Mr. Arnold, I still think it would be good advice to you. This flying saucer business is the most complicated thing you ever got mixed up in. Right then and there, I felt he was speaking the truth, but I wanted to untangle what seemed to me an awful mess. It seemed like nobody wanted to put the public straight on any of it. Not that I thought it was my job particularly, but I've been given $200 for expenses to interview this fella. If I was conservative, I certainly wouldn't spend the whole 200 just listening to a man's story and reporting on it. Little did I know I was going to spend six days at it and get mixed up in the doggondest mystery a man could ever dream of. For nearly two hours, Harold Dahl told me of all the sad experiences he had had since the 21st of June when he reported his sighting. He said you couldn't blame any of the experiences he had on anyone, but just by coincidence he nearly lost his job, just by coincidence he nearly lost his son, his wife became ill, and he had lost a tremendously good boom of logs that he had salvaged from the bay when an unusual tide had somehow broken the moorings one night. All in all, he had had a horrible time in keeping from going completely broke financially and from losing his family and home through sickness or accident. I tried to assure Harold that everybody has their ups and downs, that his tough luck could in no way be attributed to his sighting of flying saucers or to the fragments he had in his possession. I wanted to get to the bottom of this regardless, and I didn't want to be frustrated by his superstitions. After what amounted to downright pleading on my part, he finally related the following story. The reference to nearly losing a son is an interesting story, and it was explained more fully in Shaver Mystery Magazine, Volume 2, Number 1, from 1948. His son went missing and was found later in Montana, waiting tables with no idea of how he got there, allegedly. 
After a bit of conversation, Dahl begins to loosen up and tell his story. He and his crew, including his 15-year-old son, were near Maury Island, about three miles from the mainland near Tacoma. As I looked up from the wheel on my boat, I noticed six very large donut-shaped aircraft. I would judge they were about 2,000 feet above the water and almost directly overhead. At first glance, I thought them to be balloons as they seemed to be stationary. However, upon further observance, five of these strange craft were circling very slowly around the sixth one, which was stationary in the center of the formation. It appeared to me that the center aircraft was in some kind of trouble, as it was losing altitude fairly rapidly. The other aircraft stayed at a distance of about 200 feet above the center one, as if they were following the center one down. The center aircraft came to rest almost directly overhead, at about five or 600 feet above the water. The craft had portholes around the edges, were about five or six feet across, and had, quote, a dark, circular, continuous window on the inside and bottom of their donut shape, end quote, which Dahl described as a kind of observation window. He claims he took photos of the craft and that the center craft stayed stationary, surrounded by the other circling it, quote, as if they were giving some kind of assistance, end quote. It was then we heard a dull thud, like an underground explosion or a thud similar to a man stamping his heel on damp ground. Immediately following this sound, the center aircraft began spewing forth what seemed like thousands of newspapers from somewhere on the inside of its center. These newspapers, which turned out to be a white type of a very lightweight metal, fluttered to earth, most of them lightning in the bay. It seemed to hail on us in the bay and and over the beach, black or, or darker type metal, which looked similar to lava rock. We did not know if this metal was coming from the aircraft, but assumed that it was, as it fell at the same time that the white-type metal was was falling. However, these fragments were of a darker color. We did not observe them until they started hitting the beach in the bay. All of these latter fragments seemed hot, almost molten. When they hit the bay, steam rose from the water. After this very strange display, the craft left, heading west, then rising high into the sky and disappearing. Getting back to shore, Dahl relates the experience to his superior officer, Fred L. Chrisman. And the photos? Well, the photos were weird. The prints showed the craft, but the negatives, quote, were covered with spots similar to a negative that has been close to an x-ray room before it has been exposed, except that the spots printed white instead of black, as in the usual case, end quote. So... Dahl's finished his story to Arnold and moves into an aspect of his experiences that has fueled UFO lore for quite a while. Dahl is contacted by a man who wants to meet him to talk about some things, and so they go to a cafe for breakfast and begin to talk. Well, actually, the man begins to talk. Dahl listens. They went inside and ordered their breakfast. The minute this man sat down in the booth, he began relating in great detail the experience that Harold and his crew had had the day before. He did this with such accuracy, Harold said, it was shocking. The man talked as if he had been on the boat with them the entire trip. Harold knew he had never seen the man before. He was completely baffled at what he was hearing. After the man finished, he made the remark, What I've said to you is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will to believe. He made the flat statement that Harold and his crew had made an observation that shouldn't have happened for some mysterious reason, and he was giving him some sound advice. This man told Harold that if he loved his family and didn't want anything to happen to his general welfare, he would not discuss his experience with anyone. 
Oddly, Dahl didn't take what the man said very seriously and, quote, didn't think it was amazing how he knew what we had seen, end quote, since Dahl claimed he talked to many of the men at the dock about what he and his crew experienced. Next, they go out to Dahl's secretary's house, where, for some reason that isn't adequately explained, Dahl was keeping the fragments of material from the Maury Island incident. On examining the fragment, Arnold declares it to be an ordinary lava rock. Dahl does not have the other substance, the white metal, a sort of light newspapery type substance. He doesn't have that. Fred Chrisman, his superior officer, has that, and they would see it the next day. So, the next day, the Dahl-Chrisman duo arrives at room 502. Fred Chrisman was a short, stocky fella, dark complexion, a happy-go-lucky appearing person, very cheerful and extremely alert. He was practically bubbling over to tell me his story. Up until this time, I hadn't heard about his experience. Chrisman began telling me how furious he was with Harold Dahl when he returned to the docks with his wild tail and the damaged boat. He said he had cussed Harold out for damaging the boat. But Chrisman's opinion changed. Why? My curiosity arose when I considered the peculiar way the boat had been damaged. I sneaked off the next morning early to go over to Maury Island to see if there was actually 20 tons of this debris on the beach like Dahl said. On arriving at Maury Island, I did find all the debris, lava rock, and some of the white metal that Harold had told me about. Now, to make the story worse... When I stood looking at these fragments, holding a few pieces in my hand, one of the same kind of aircraft that Harold described to me came right out of a, a large sort of cumulus cloud and made a wide circle of the little bay. The aircraft banked at about a 10-degree angle. It had no visible means of propulsion. It was more like a large inner tube with round eyes or portholes around it on the outside. It made no noise and, 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 and circled the bay as if it was looking for something. It did not seem slightly squished, as Harold described the six of them the day before. You know, I, I hold a commercial pilot's license, and I flew over a hundred missions and fighter aircraft over Burma in the last war, and I feel qualified to describe it accurately. Harold doesn't know how to fly. I would say the portholes around the strange airplane were about five feet in diameter. Also, I would say it had a definite observation window, and the whole surface appeared to be metal, burled in a kind of a brassy color, almost golden. As the sun hit it, it showed more brilliance than a solid, polished surface would show. I had the feeling, as Crispin talked, that solid as he appeared, he definitely wanted to domineer the conversation and trends of thought throughout the entire Maury Island incident. Chrisman's domination of the entire situation would continue as Dahl started to place himself more in the background. Neither man has an objection to Arnold bringing in his friend E.J. Smith, also known as Smithy, also known as Big Smithy. This man has so many ways that Arnold refers to him that when I first read the book, I was convinced that I was losing track of the characters. Anyway, Smithy, Big Smithy, is a pilot for United Airlines, and uh, he's brought in to help the investigation. Things were getting a bit strange for Arnold, and they would get stranger, of course, and he was happy to have his friend there to help cover this increasingly odd story. But both of them began to get a bit paranoid as well. We both had a peculiar feeling that we were being watched, or that there was something dangerous about getting involved with Crispin and Dahl. First was our suspicion of a hoax. 
Second was our suspicion that Russian espionage was baiting us on the whole affair for a very simple reason. To find out if actually we knew that these flying saucers were made in the United States and were a military secret. At this time, we didn't even dream of the possibility that they could come from another world. This is a good reminder that during these opening, literally weeks and months of the flying saucer phenomenon, the, the modern flying saucer phenomenon, the ET explanation wasn't the instant go-to solution that it would become in the 50s and 60s and beyond. Also, maybe they weren't paranoid without a reason. At this point in Arnold's story, things take another twist. He talks to a local reporter, Ted Morello, who tells Arnold that he has gotten anonymous phone calls detailing every move in Arnold's and Smith's investigation. At first, they suspected Dahl or Chrisman, but they soon realized that some things reported had taken place while neither man had been present, suggesting that the room was bugged. Yeah, really. The next day, Chrisman and Dahl show up with more lava rock-type substances, as well as this mysterious white metal. Fred Chrisman handed us a piece of the white metal. Both Smith and I would grant that it was very light, but no more than the ordinary aluminum which certain sections of all large military aircraft are made of. If this was truly the light metal that Harold Dahl said was spewed from these strange aircraft, we knew, or we thought we knew, that it was a fake. We had seen hundreds of piles of this stuff in salvage dumps many places throughout the U.S. where surplus army bombers had been junked. There was only one unusual thing about this white metal that made us stop and wonder. On one piece that Chrisman handed us, we could plainly see that two parts of it had been riveted. However, the rivets were not round. They were square and long rivets. I'd never seen that type of rivet used in aircraft we manufacture, and I don't think Smithy had either. Arnold goes on to say that the metal didn't match Dahl's original description of it, so at this point, Arnold's suspicion of a possible hoax is really more focused on Chrisman, but he had no idea what Chrisman's objective or goal in perpetrating such a hoax would be. At this point, Arnold feels like he may be in over his head and decides to call in the military intel men, Brown and Davidson, who he had dealt with before. This was when I suggested that we call Davidson and Brown of military intelligence. They'd asked me to call or wire them collect if anything unusual came up, and we figured this was certainly unusual. I know that we were thinking of the same thing. We thought if there was any hoax to these stories, the prospect of being interrogated by military intelligence would cause Chrisman and Dahl to show their hand. Chrisman was very enthusiastic about the prospect of military intelligence taking over the investigation. Harold Dahl got a rather frightened look on his face and didn't want to have anything to do with it. He said right then and there, If you call them in, I won't talk to them. My story is true, Fred Chrisman knows it, and he can tell it for me. I have a peculiar feeling this whole business is going to end up in a lot of bad luck for somebody, and I'd just as soon go to a show and forget about it from here on out. Clearly, Dahl is getting concerned about the direction this investigation might be taking. Talking to a magazine reporter and his airline pilot buddy is one thing. Talking to spooks is quite another. The two Air Force men arrived on the afternoon of July 31st, 1947. The interview process can be summed up in the following phrase, quote, For the next two and a half hours, Fred Chrisman related Harold Dahl's story, end quote. This is, in many ways, the Fred Chrisman show now and the weight of the story and of Arnold's investigation begin to get a bit much. 
We discussed all phases of the peculiar business, the mysterious telephone informant and the, the persistency of the press in trying to get a story from us. Before we realized it, it was nearly midnight. Chrisman was reviewing some of his own experiences. He told Brown and Davidson that he would go home and get a box of the fragments and would bring them down immediately so they could take them to Hamilton Field. All of a sudden, Brown and Davidson lost their enthusiasm. They weren't interested anymore. They got up to leave. Captain Smith and I invited them to stay the rest of the night with us. The room we had was large, and we proposed having two fold-down beds brought in. They would have none of it. They were flying back at once. I think we argued for over 15 minutes that it was senseless to fly back that night. Everyone was tired. So, the Intel guys are leaving. They've got some samples of the weird lava rock-like material in a cornflake cereal box. That's a real thing. According to Arnold, anyway. Arnold also forgets to tell them about an odd letter Dahl received. Dahl said this anonymous writer told him that the flying disks were actually manned by beings such as we, only less dense, so to speak, than we are. Due to the atomic explosions, the radiation now released in the atmosphere had caused these beings to become visible to us on Earth. These flying disks, which were all shapes and sizes, were the vehicles which the gods of this Earth used to protect this Earth from outside dark influences or enemies. Actually, flying disks were under a severe attack by other beings who were enemies of the people and life on this planet. On reflection, Arnold is kind of happy he didn't tell the Air Force guys about this because it sounds kind of crazy. So, the next day, the morning of August 1st, 1947, Arnold and Smith awoke. Captain Smith said he thought he'd take a bath. It was still only about 9.20 a.m., I recall he had just gotten in the tub when the telephone rang. It was Fred Chrisman. Did you hear over the radio this morning that a B-25 exploded and crashed some 20 minutes after takeoff from McCord Field about 1.30 this morning? I think you and I know who was aboard that plane. An ice-cold chill went down my spine. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. I yelled at Smithy, who was singing in the bathtub. I told him what had happened. I flopped into a chair, all of a sudden too weak to stand up. Captain Smith got out of the tub, white as a sheet. Arnold is particularly shaken by this. Suddenly, I didn't want to play investigator any longer. I decided to call Mr. Raymond Palmer in Chicago and get out of this mess. I placed my call and got my connection. This was the first time I had ever talked to Ray Palmer. I offered to give him back the $200 expense money. I, I told him I felt inadequate to investigate the situation. Two lives and a government bomber had been lost, and I, I felt it had a direct relationship. I said that I wouldn't give him the story, even. Fred Chrisman is there, asks to speak to Palmer, and, and gets put on the line, and Arnold's suspicions of Chrisman continue to grow. Chrisman talked briefly to Palmer, assuring him that the B-25 actually had crashed. Later, Raymond Palmer told me he recognized Chrisman's voice. He was positive that it was the same voice that had called him long distance on other occasions from various parts of the country. Brother, what a mess. By this time, I was thinking that Chrisman was peculiar from another standpoint. The day before, I'd asked him how he and Dahl had become known to Raymond Palmer in Chicago. Chrisman said that he became acquainted with him through Venture Magazine, which he purchased from the newsstands. In my estimation, that placed Chrisman in the position of trying to cover up something. I knew there was no such magazine published at that time by Raymond Palmer. Arnold decides that one of the ways to figure out what's going on is to go out to Mari Island itself, examine the landscape, and see if the lava rock-type material that had been presented to him 
is actually something that had naturally been part of that island. So they asked to see Crispin's boat. The idea is they're going to take this out there to the island. And despite Crispin's claims that it had been damaged, they saw no evidence of this. In fact, it didn't actually look like a harbor patrol boat. It looked like a fishing boat. And Arnold doubted it was even, you know, safe to take out to the island. So he never gets out to Maury Island. And then they asked Crispin about the photos Dahl had taken. And Crispin claims that he can't find the prints. He offers a weird excuse that it's it's weird. It's like he may have taken them up to his mountain cabin because he took a bunch of stuff up to his mountain cabin. And it might be with the stuff he took up to his mountain cabin. The story of the crash had, by this point, hit the papers. The crash of the, the B-25 bomber, not the crash of whatever fell out of the flying saucers. And there was a considerable degree of conspiratorial speculation in an article by Paul Lance in the Tacoma Times of August 2nd, 1947, in which Lance, you know, sort of claims without really any, any solid reason at all that sabotage was being suspected. And later on, it would be thought maybe by the FBI that Chrisman had fed this line to Lance to sort of make things a little bit more sensational. In any event, Arnold's time in Tacoma is coming to an end. He attempts to find Chrisman and learns that uh, he's hopped an army plane to Alaska. Dahl was still around, but later he would drop off the radar as well. Arnold tries to find Dahl's secretary's house, where the lava rock substances were initially kept. Arnold stops by only to find the house boarded up, covered in cobwebs. He leaves Tacoma, but when trying to leave, the fuel valves on his plane were mysteriously turned off, causing him to have to crash land the plane shortly after takeoff. Now, fortunately, he was uninjured, but the experience had shaken him. The slag-like material would eventually be analyzed, and apart from a high calcium content and also some titanium content, was considered normal. We'll be moving along to some material from the FBI account in a little bit, so let's take a little break. For our next episode, since it's going to be coming out just before Halloween, I thought it would be a good time to head to bluegrass country and check out the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins. So be back in a little while for that very fun, bizarre story. In the meantime, you can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, some pigeon that will go and collect cassette tapes of somebody who's copied the podcast onto a cassette tape, and so on. Before we get back to Maury Island, though, I wanted to share some choices for a contactee Mount Rushmore sent in by listeners. Lester emails to say that Cecil Michael should be on there, quote, because we all want Jesus to save us from hell, don't we? End quote. Can't argue with that, Lester. Ron on Facebook endorses our choice of George Van Tassel. Jennifer on Facebook gives a vote to Dorothy Martin saying, quote, I love a cult story where no one dies or gets 30 teenage acolytes pregnant, end quote. 
it was kind of refreshing, wasn't it? On Instagram, Spellbound Tours recommended Albert K. Bender, and Infraterrestrial preferred Howard Menger and Rail, who we'll cover at some point in the future, uh, probably after he's dead. I don't want him unleashing an army of clones on me or anything. Thanks to everyone who had some suggestions. Now, let's go back to the Pacific Northwest. Now, to turn to the official documentation from the FBI, there are some interesting tidbits in the files I've received, and in the interest of time, I'm going to hit some highlights. This is from an August 14, 1947 memo. Harold A. Dahl and Fred Chrisman, when interviewed by bureau agents, advised in a signed statement on August 7, 1947, that in the early part of June 1947, they picked up some strange rock formations from a gravel pit on Maury Island, Washington. They sent a cigar box of these formations to one Ray Palmer, editor of the Venture Magazine in Evanston, Illinois, and also editor of the Fantasy Magazine in Chicago, Illinois. According to them, they requested Palmer to make only a chemical analysis of the rock formations. Palmer then wrote asking for additional samples, stating he had been unable to analyze the material. Dahl and Chrisman remarked that a few days after the flying disc stories appeared during the latter part of June, Palmer contacted them by telephone, saying he would pay for an exclusive story if the materials they had sent him were fragments of a flying disc. Dahl said he wrote Palmer a letter in which he represented the material as being part of a flying disc, and both Dahl and Chrisman admitted that this statement was entirely false. Dahl and Chrisman then received a call from one Kenneth Arnold of Boise, Idaho, who requested them to meet him at the Winthrop Hotel in Tacoma on July 31, 1947. According to them, Arnold called in Army intelligence officers from Hamilton Field, California, and one Captain Emil H. Smith of United Airlines of Seattle to attend the meeting. Dahl and Chrisman maintained they told the intelligence officers Davidson and Brown, Arnold and Smith, exactly how they got the rock formations, and that they had no connection with any flying disks. So that contradicts a little bit of what we've already learned, especially that they, you know, denied the flying disc aspect to the Army Air Force guys or to Arnold and Smith. The statement that they signed is part of the file, and it pretty much matches what we just heard. Later, there would be hints that Dahl's position was, uh, his position that it was a hoax, was in fact a put-on to take the attention of the feds and press away from him, to sort of get him out of the spotlight. But in August of '47 it doesn't really come out that way. Also, note that Palmer is painted in a fairly negative light here, much more of a huckster than a journalist. Not an entirely unrealistic assessment, but a bit unfair in this case. Fred Natus, in his excellent biography of Palmer, The Man from Mars, finds no evidence that Palmer was ginning up a story out of thin air. By the way, Natus's biography of Palmer is well worth your time. Overall, and this was a bit surprising to me when I first read it, the account in the FBI file is remarkably similar to what Arnold wrote later in his book. The affidavits from Smith and Arnold are, are true pretty much to what Arnold would recount a decade later, more or less. So as far as who said what when, at least during the time Arnold and Smith were on the case in Tacoma, there isn't a lot to learn. But it's in the interview with the two witnesses and some other ancillary material 
That's what really makes this FBI file a lot of fun, as well as being enlightening. And one of the most enlightening bits of that file is the account of Ernie Vogel, a reporter with the Associated Press Wire Service. It concerns a conversation he had with Harold Dahl and, tangentially, Dahl's wife. Ernie Vogel, Associated Press Wireman, Tacoma, Washington, advised that in the early part of June 1947, he was requested by the Seattle Post-Intelligencer to check on a story which he was informed had been obtained from the fire chief at Harper, Washington. The story was supposed to have originated with Fred Chrisman. Vogel stated that the story was to the effect that Dahl, while patrolling in his boat near Maury Island, saw five or six flying discs, one of which fluttered toward the ground and finally disintegrated. Fragments of the disc were reported to have showered down on the boat of Harold Dahl, causing some damage and killing his dog. Mr. Vogel stated that he went to the home of Harold Dahl to check with him on this flying disc story. He stated that as best he could recall, this was just a few days after the first flying disc stories had appeared in the paper and was on a Sunday evening. He believed it was in the early part of June. He stated that Dahl took him into the kitchen and proceeded to talk about this flying disc story in low, muffled tones. He stated that Dahl acted rather suspicious and that shortly his wife came into the kitchen and was in a considerable rage, telling Dahl to admit that the entire story was a plain fantasy which he had dreamed up. He stated that after his wife told Dahl to admit the entire story was false, that Dahl then admitted there was nothing whatsoever to the story and it was an entire hoax. Vogel stated that, in view of the enraged condition of Dahl's wife, he immediately left and reported to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer that the entire story was a hoax and they should not print it in any way. He further stated that he advised the Seattle Post-Intelligencer that Dahl was a mental case and that nothing which he had reported should be carried as far as a news story. Vogel stated that since that time he had received repeated requests from the Boise Statesman regarding information as to the flying disc stories reportedly originating with Chrisman and Dahl. Vogel stated that he had never, in his experience, had such pressure brought upon him to release a news story, and that he repeatedly advised the Boise Statesman that the story of seeing the flying discs by Dahl and Chrisman was a complete fabrication. So even at this ver- very early point, we have some skepticism about the entire thing from a Dahl family member. And she won't be the last. In years to come, decades to come actually, researchers would contact Chrisman's son and daughter and ask them what their take on the situation was. And both of them verified that this was a hoax story. And Dahl's son, Charles in particular, was adamant that somehow, for some reason, Dahl had sort of fallen, I think these were Charles's actual words, fallen under the spell of Fred Chrisman. So, so Chrisman, in several different accounts, is very much a catalyst to this story to some degree. The next excerpt in the file is a favorite of mine, and I hope you'll enjoy it too. Mr. Arnold stated that he personally thinks that Palmer's business is a blind for something else and that Dahl and Chrisman will do anything that Palmer asks him to do and will not talk unless Palmer tells him to. So that's a fairly deep level of suspicion on Arnold's part and seems surprising to those of us who know how tight their partnership will eventually become over the years. And I should mention that the weird sort of 
grammar in there where it starts off talking about two people but then uses singular pronouns. That's how it was written in the FBI report, and I didn't want to change the grammar. But I assume he's talking about both Dahl and Christman. So anyway, this this is sort of Arnold saying, I'm not sure I trust this Ray Palmer guy, but we know that in a few years, they're going to be pretty tight to a certain degree. In fact, in his digest, Flying Saucers, Palmer would, would run ads for Ken Arnold's uranium processing business, as well as ads for a dandruff cure that both Palmer and Arnold endorsed, which is just all kinds of fun. So looking at Arnold here, we're, we're at a point where this bomber has crashed, killing these two men that we know he had had a, a relationship with because of his own sighting before the Maury Island stuff happened. And, and he just wants out and he, he's, he's getting frustrated and, and sad. And Palmer insists he stays on the job even after all of this happened. This must have seemed odd. To Arnold. In fact, related to that, our last excerpt from the FBI file is a letter to Arnold from Palmer where Palmer lays on just a heavy guilt trip about finishing this Tacoma investigation. Chrisman is willing to contribute his share. I hope you will too. This thing must not be hushed up and forgotten. It's much too important to the people of America, if not the world, and no censorship of the matter is legal. You needn't fear that angle. You certainly did a bang-up job of investigation. Also, you wrote one of the best articles about your June 24th experience I've ever seen. Please do the same on this last business. You owe it to those two men who were killed. So we go from comparison, you know, Chrisman's doing his bit, to reassurance, don't worry that you'll get in trouble or you'll be censored, to flattery, your article about your own siding was one of the best things I've ever read, to sort of guilt and shame. These two dead guys are looking down on you from heaven and will judge you by your actions. This is great stuff. Of course, it's great stuff in the sense that Palmer was apparently being sort of devilishly manipulative. Anyway, the official FBI verdict about all this is that it's a hoax, and that's based on and bolstered by Dahl and Chrisman showing up to the FBI and, and, and basically denouncing the whole thing. Leaving aside, of course, later claims that they were lying about lying or whatever. So Project Saucer, the public relations friendly side of Project Sign that we covered back in Encounter 56, based on the FBI investigation and Dahl and Christmas sworn statement, came to the, that same conclusion that it was a hoax. Now, Project Sign slash grudge slash blue book officer Ed Ruppelt, in his account of government investigations into these things, reinforced that hoax view a few years later. The majority of writers of saucer lore have played this sighting to the hilt, pointing out as their main premise the fact that the story must be true because the government never openly exposed or prosecuted either of the two hoaxers. This is a logical premise, but a false one. The reason for the thorough investigation of the Maury Island hoax was that the government had thought seriously of prosecuting the men, at the last minute, it was decided, after talking to the two men, that the hoax was a harmless joke that had mushroomed, and that the loss of two lives and a B-25 could not be directly blamed on the two men. The story wasn't even printed because at the time of the incident, even though, in this case, the press knew about it, the facts were classed as evidence. By the time the facts were released, they were yesterday's news, 
and nothing is deader than yesterday's news. Ed Rupelt, always there with a bucket of ice-cold water to throw on your flying saucer hopes and dreams. So, once the smoke, or lava rock, slag had cleared, the Maury Island case and its cast of characters would surface again and again. It's referred to by Desmond Leslie in Flying Saucers of Landon. That's the book that brought George Adamski to prominence. Gray Barker draws a possible connection between Harold Dahl's encounters and Al Bender's in They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers and, and really was the first to sort of fold in the Maury Island incident into the emerging men in black lore, which makes sense since Gray Barker basically invented the modern man in black lore. This would not necessarily mean that the same man and the company of two others had visited Bender. After all, a great many people wore black suits, but something in the manner of the three men's dress had impressed Bender deeply. I knew that, for he seemed to ascribe importance to the dark clothing. So basically, we don't know that these incidents were connected at all, but dark suit in 47, dark suit in the early 50s? I mean, yeah, kind of makes sense, both trying to hush up a flying saucer witness. Barker makes these connections, and those connections would remain solidified in the minds of the UFO field. And... While, of course, there is speculation about the Maury Island saucers and the substances, most writings about the incidents from the mid-1960s on focus less on the saucers and the gunk and more about Fred Chrisman. We've already seen some of his activities in our episode about Richard Shaver, but in his 1970 book, Operation Trojan Horse, John Keel lays out the basics of Chrisman's post-Maury Island life. Dahl's boss, Fred Chrisman, became a central figure in the mystery. Dahl himself vanished soon after this interview with Arnold, and efforts by later investigators failed to locate him. Chrisman had been a flyer in World War II, and he was suddenly recalled into the service in 1947, flown to Alaska, and later stationed in Greenland. In recent years, the amateur sleuths engaged in investigating the alleged conspiracy to assassinate President John F. Kennedy have tried to implicate Chrisman. District Attorney James Garrison of New Orleans subpoenaed one Fred Lee Chrisman of Tacoma, Washington to testify before the grand jury listening to Garrison's evidence against Clay Shaw, according to wire service reports in November of 1968. Chrisman was identified as a radio announcer, but Garrison's investigators implied that he was either a member of the CIA or had been, quote, engaged in undercover activities for a part of the industrial warfare complex, end quote. He allegedly operated under cover as a preacher and was, quote, engaged in work to help gypsies, end quote. These stories caused a chain reaction in UFO circles, since UFO believers have long accused the CIA of somehow being connected with the flying saucer mystery. Of course, the CIA was in its infancy in 1947 at the time of the Maury Island case and was then largely staffed by naval personnel from World War II intelligence units. So, there's our connection with the JFK assassination. More specifically, later on, some suspected Chrisman of being one of the three tramps at Dealey Plaza in Dallas. If you're familiar with JFK lore, the three tramps are known to you, probably. 
Now, researcher and friend of the show, Adam Gorightly, as part of his series about fringe figure Ray Brochiers, who made an appearance in our episode about Val Thor and Frank Strangis a while back, explains that Crispin was cleared of his involvement on the day of the assassination because there were a number of credible witnesses who witnessed him teaching, substitute teaching, in the Pacific Northwest on November 22nd, 1963. Gorightly has a good rundown of Chrisman's activities, and what follows is based on his research with the utmost appreciation. There's a link to the article in the show notes as well, and I urge you to check it out and to buy all of Gorightly's books, especially the stuff about James Shelby Downard, who's not a UFO guy, but it's wild stuff. So check out anything Adam Gorightly writes. Gorightly reveals that despite what you read everywhere, Crispin wasn't actually shipped off at the drop of the hat to Alaska. He was recalled to active duty during the Korean War, first as a fighter pilot and then as a transport pilot. In 1953, he leaves the service and starts teaching high school in Elgin, Oregon. By 1956, he's the school superintendent in Huntington, Oregon, about 100 miles south. A couple years later, he becomes involved in UFO activities once more. This time, among other people he's involved with, with our old friend, the not-reverend, not-doctor, Frank E. Strangis. That was in 58, the same year he was arrested for a DUI, having become addicted to barbiturates. His career in education comes to an end for a bit, and he works for the personnel department at Boeing. He gets hooked up with a character named Thomas Edward Beckham, who would later claim that Chrisman worked for the CIA and Project Blue Book. Gorightly describes the circumstances behind Chrisman's re-entry into education and his quick exit therefrom thusly. Chrisman re-entered the teaching profession with a job at Cascade Union High School in Salem, Oregon, a position that lasted only two years before he was fired for, quote, forming a secret student organization. Chrisman formed the organization and conducted meetings on school premises without authority, end quote. A school board ruling stated that the, quote, organization is of such a nature that it should not be condoned or authorized to exist in this district, end quote. There is nothing on this entire planet I want to know more than what that organization was. At the same time, I feel like I would never really be the same, sort of ethically or morally or spiritually, after learning that information. Chrisman then moves into speech writing and public relations for right-wing politicians in Tacoma. He's employed by the Reconosciuto Marketing Agency. If you've read the Jim Keith, Ken Thomas book, The Octopus, uh, the name Reconosciuto will ring bells. Moving into radio... Chrisman hammered the corruption in Tacoma government. A book, Murder of a City, Tacoma, involved his boss, Marshal Reconosciuto, who had a son named Michael. Go rightly, again, sort of explains who Michael Reconosciuto is. A scientific whiz kid who referred to Chrisman as his mentor, in the early 1980s, Reconosciuto was involved with a secret version of the Promise software a la the Inslaw Affair, all part of an elaborate conspiracy laid out in The Octopus, Secret Government, and the Death of Danny Casolaro. In the Martinsburg, West Virginia hotel room where Casolaro allegedly committed suicide in August of 1991, 
notes were discovered that mentioned, quote, MJ-12, extraterrestrial, end quote, and, quote, Area 51, end quote. The source of Danny Casolaro's UFO info was Michael Riconciuto, who also alleged that Fred Chrisman had hoaxed the Maury Island incident to cover up a radioactive liquid metal that had been sprayed over Maury Island by Boeing aircraft as part of a secret experiment. As previously noted, Chrisman worked at Boeing in the late 50s and early 60s, and due to this association, conspiracy researchers have connected Boeing and Chrisman as agents of the dastardly military-industrial complex that had also allegedly had a hand in the JFK assassination dance party. JFK Assassination Dance Party is a band name that is ripe for the taking. There's so much more we could say about Chrisman, that he got involved with drug running, that he claimed that the plots of the TV show The Invaders was based on adventures he had experienced in his own life. All in all, what it adds up to for me is that Fred Chrisman is one of the people on the entire planet least likely to have been telling the truth about, well, anything, much less a flying saucer incident. Now, sowing confusion for unclear and nefarious or pointless motives, I can see that. But telling a straightforward story? Nope. Jim Keith, who we've seen several times on this program in his book, Casebook on the Men in Black, posits the idea that Chrisman may have been working on behalf of the intelligence community to sow confusion and disinformation. And Ken Thomas, in his book JFK and UFO, does perhaps the most thorough job of connecting the Maury Island events not only to the JFK assassination, but other parapolitical ideas. At the heart of all of this is Fred Chrisman. If we can examine the Maury Island incident at all... It can only be seen through the embellishments, reinterpretations, misinterpretations, misreportings, exaggerations, and debunkings that have happened many times over the past 50 years. Its elasticity is due, in no small part, to its attachment to the life and times of Fred Chrisman, who carried the tale with him through a long and often disreputable career. Indeed, even champions of the reality of the Maury Island UFO event have reasons to believe that Chrisman fabricated his involvement. Ken Thomas also provides a link between Chrisman and some, I don't know, environmentally questionable practices akin to what we've already heard discussed. He made an application through the Atomic Energy Commission on August 21, 1947, but it remains unclear what became of it. The Atomic Energy Commission protected the secrets of atomic power and bombs and as such reigned over the processing of plutonium. It is possible that the Maury Island UFO, or something else, may have been dumping radioactive waste illegally in the bay at the behest of the AEC. The threats that the man in black made against Dahl, therefore, could have been an attempt to cover up the illegal dumping Dahl had witnessed. Dahl's photos had been fogged, as if exposed to radioactivity. His son Charles's burns and the death of the family dog could have been due to radiation as well. Jim Mars, in his massive overview of the UFO phenomenon, Alien Agenda, provides a good summary of the questions surrounding the incident and the wide variety of potential realities and explanations. Did Dahl and Chrisman actually have a brush with alien spacecraft? Were they pressured by intelligence operatives into covering up the event? Or was it truly a hoax? For what purpose? If it was to gain fame and fortune, neither man did. 
Was it a setup to discredit Kenneth Arnold? Was it to cover up illegal waste dumping by the AEC? Was the story obscured to protect the secrecy of Project Paperclip, or was it to distract attention from the secret testing of Nazi saucer craft? That's a good summary, and a good note to go out on. Oh, one final thing. In 2017, 50 years after the dawn of the Flying Saucer Age, the Washington State Senate passed Senate Resolution 8648, which recognized Washington State's role in the Summer of the Saucers. It's something else. Let's look at a few portions of this. Whereas, on June 21, 1947, Tacoma resident Harold Dahl and his son allegedly sighted six flying discs over Puget Sound near Vashon, Maury Island, an event now commonly known as the Maury Island Incident, and whereas, on June 22, 1947, Mr. Dahl alleges he was warned not to talk about what he saw by a man dressed in a black suit, and whereas... On June 24, 1947, pilot Kenneth Arnold alleges he saw nine unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, near Mount Rainier. I appreciate the number of alleges in this section, but where is all this going? Whereas, these controversial sightings helped launch a pop culture phenomenon of UFO sightings across the United States during the summer of 1947, which became known as the Summer of the Saucers. Okay, I like this. I like that there's a sense of localism, some sense of localism, some recognition that Washington State is a key piece in saucer history. Too often, as you know, I've mentioned many times that Washington's sightings, those of Arnold, those of the Maury Island stuff, get overlooked in favor of stuff like Roswell. So I love this. I love that they're sort of staking a claim as a, as a state and as a region to the Summer of Saucers. Let's continue with this great sort of presentation. Whereas on August 8th, 1947, two weeks after the Washington sightings, a UFO is alleged to have crashed outside Roswell, New Mexico, and this alleged crash has become the most well-known alleged UFO event in history. Oh, come on. Come on. Shame on you, Senators. Shame, shame, shame. Have some dang dignity. Let's continue. Whereas, on August 1st, 1947, Army Air Corps intelligence officers Davidson and Brown, who interviewed Harold Dahl about his sighting, lost their lives when the B-25 bomber they were piloting crashed outside of Kelso, Washington, and, whereas... Following the tragic deaths of Davidson and Brown, Harold Dahl publicly claimed his sighting at Maury Island was a hoax, and whereas special agents of the FBI conducted an investigation of the deaths of Davidson and Brown and ultimately concluded that Dahl did not recant his story, but that his claim of hoax was itself a fabrication to avoid further public attention and ridicule. Oh, for crying out loud, if anybody has any evidence that the FBI decided that he was not really lying about lying about the hoax, please forward it to me. It just goes on and on. Oh, here's a whereas that might lead to something and tell us what this entire resolution might be about. Whereas, on April 1st, 2017, the third annual Burian UFO Festival will be held at the newest hipster hangout of downtown Old Burian with wide community participation and good humor. 
You know what's coming next, right? You've been listening to the show long enough to know what's coming next. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. All kidding aside, I love local UFO festivals, and I hope the people in Burien were able to draw some money with this state senate resolution racket. I called this episode the Maury Island Mess, not just because of the convolutions of the original story, but because of the way the story has been able to be retconned into multiple aspects of UFO, paranormal, and parapolitical lore in the intervening seven decades. At its heart, though, well, here's the thing, you can't really get to its heart. Like so many UFO stories, it's natural to try to determine whether it's real or fake. But as we've seen so often, something being a fake or a hoax doesn't really enlighten us. What's the hoax for? Who's the target? There's some great speculation around, and I I think the most fruitful angle to explore is, is Fred Chrisman's deep shadiness. My usual gut reaction of, Government-related disinformation is tempting here, but who knows? For me, the biggest takeaway is that we need to continue to view Maury Island not as an alien alloys case, not as a crashed saucer case, not as a man in black scenario, but rather as a useful relic of a time before any of these things existed as defined categories, as a memory from a summer when weird stuff in the sky confused everyone. And as a lesson that America's saucer life has always been confusing, sensationalistic, and inhabited by some real characters. Long may it continue. Like our contactee Mount Rushmore, if you're a Maury Island aficionado, there may be some stuff you have wanted emphasized more, or less, or whatever, the best advice I can give you is to start your own podcast. There are, as you may well know, very, very few UFO podcasts out there on the cyber airwaves. In the show notes are links to some of the materials used in this episode, including links to purchase books by Fred Natus and Ken Thomas, among others. A reminder that if you purchase a book through one of these links, our show gets up to four and a half American cents. Thank you for your support. Honestly, though, uh, thanks to all who have donated to the show. It's much appreciated. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time. Keep watching the skies, because Fred Chrisman is watching you.